My mother was an incredibly perceptive person. She was a Southerner who understood the varieties of people very well. I thought her insights were uncanny, actually, perhaps even metaphysical at times. I remember the occasions we went shopping or to the grocery store. On some of these trips, I recall how she always knew, beyond a shadow of a doubt, whether a white person who had just walked by us was attempting to pass for white. She always knew. I am not suggesting that she guessed or speculated. My mother could look at a person, discern their ancestry, and cite their genealogy. She was from a time when people knew people they didn't know. She wasn't interested in sitting in judgment. But as a teen, when I was with her, she never missed an opportunity to test her skill and memory in this kind of genetic detection. As we would make our way home, she would always counsel me that all I had to do in this world was stay black and die. This is Dr. Catherine Bancoli Bedina with The Invention of Racism. The goal of this podcast series is to share the subtle and the not-so-subtle nuances of racism from the past into the 21st century. Understanding and speaking the truth about racism is the first step toward combating and ultimately eliminating it. This episode looks at the phenomena of white women passing as black women, a kind of racial imposter syndrome, primarily through the lens of how social media engages racism and white privilege. On September 3rd, 2020, Jessica Krug, an associate professor at George Washington University in Washington, D.C., revealed in a Medium blog post that she has spent at least part of her adult life pretending to be a black and or Afro-Latina woman. It turns out she is a white Jewish woman from Kansas City, Missouri. As Jessa Bambalera or Jess La Bambalera, she had created a rather complex and troubling backstory which included constructing a sad childhood where her black or Algerian mother was a drug-addicted sex worker, and she asserted that she was the product of rape, her father being a white German. But these details are vague. Apparently, she told so many different versions of the story, it was impossible to keep up with the persona she had created. It was complex as she wrapped herself in black person of color womanhood, Algerian, Puerto Rican, and then presented herself as an intellectual leader among the new generation of woke academics. These are scholars who push the boundaries of avant-garde scholar activism. Krug admitted her lies, apologized, and blame the affair, at least partially, on mental illness. Shortly after her disclosure, 
at the beginning of the semester, there were calls for her resignation, and she did resign from her professorship at GWU. It seems that everyone at this point has written about this affair. And those interested in this sort of thing have pointed out Jessica Krug's story is not new. There are white people who claim to be black, both male and female, and some of them are public facing. Social media called Krug the latest, uh, the latest edition of Rachel Dolezal. Now remember, Dolezal was the president of the NAACP in Spokane, Washington, who was forced to step down when her parents, in 2015, exposed that she was a white woman passing herself off as a black woman. She had married a black man and had a child. The backstory she created for herself as a black woman was that she was the mixed race daughter of a black father. And this was not true. As a civil rights leader in Washington state, she also had the opportunity to teach Africana studies courses at Eastern Washington University. Dolezal went on to write a memoir titled In Full Color, Finding My Place in a Black and White World. And she was featured in the 2018 Netflix documentary, The Rachel Divide. Dolezal did not deny her stolen identity. In fact, she maintained that though she has white parents, that she is transracial. She chooses to present herself as a black woman because she identifies with black culture, box braids and, and all. She even legally changed her name to Nikichi Amare Diallo. She has always insisted that she has a right to claim black womanhood. Then there is the secret life of Satuel Pagelin Cole, AKA Jennifer Lynn Benton. Benton was a prominent Indianapolis, Indiana activist who presented herself as a black woman. She vocally supported black and LGBTQIA causes, even though her parents were white. Now, Benton didn't invent a complex trauma as a backstory. She didn't have to. As a white woman, Jennifer Benton's father had left the family and her mother remarried. But in addition, sadly, her sister murdered their mother, claiming that their stepfather had physically and sexually abused them and her mother allowed it to happen. Her sister served eight of 30 years in prison for manslaughter. Benton passed as a black woman for at least a decade. She literally changed her name to pay homage to Satchel Paige, the famous black Negro League and major league baseball pitcher. And the other part of her name came from her best friend whom she called sister a woman by the name of Chantel Owens Cole, who died at the end of April, 2020. 
However, Benton did not claim that she was biracial. However, Benton did claim that she was biracial and that she had a black father that she never met until much later in life. And this was not true. Benton's case is also complex and it is unfolding because there are not only questions about the amount of local media attention she received in Indianapolis, but also concerns about an alleged fraudulent claim to Chantel Owens Cole's estate. Now this is according to blackindylive.com. They did an expose uh, titled Shocking details emerge in indie activists who faked life as a black woman. Now, after a hiatus since late April, Benton emerged in September and posted on Facebook that she had, quote, taken up space as a black person while knowing I am white, end quote. We have three white women claiming to be black women. Krug, Dolezal and Benton. And as I said before, there are many others, and I want to stress the word many. Their appearance as black women is different from the traditional racial script, though there are a few similarities. Racism in America, the hatred and oppression of people of African descent, has caused some black people, especially those who are mixed race, to historically adopt any kind of identity that might shield them from white animosity. People passed as white, and there is a body of literature and film that illustrates this. The cautionary notes are intense. The notable tragic mulatto in life and literature is often referenced. People forced to live in two worlds and who were unwanted uh, by both. Not all black people who could pass for white wanted to do this. Those who did want to had to possess sufficient Caucasoid features. Ties with families were cut and new past lives were constructed. They most certainly had to forego having children. And before the 1960s, Men would live in fear of discovery and being charged with not only spousal deception, but with raping their white wives. They lived in a world privy to what white people say about black people when there are no black people around. How could they even respond? They lived an entire lifetime with the consequences of their actions. Now we can disparage people who passed for white, but the bottom line is that it was and is a manifestation of the force of white supremacy and the attempt to survive a hostile racial landscape. Yet, in the past, these mixed race people were more often part of and accepted by the black community. White racial supremacy if not stealthy at times, is devilishly masterful. Krug, Dolezal, and Benton built whole lives around false notions, thinking 
even through the lens of mental confusion, that it was acceptable to assume a black racial identity not their own and even profit off of that identity. Social media asks, how is this different from white people tanning, enlarging their derriere, having collagen injected into their lips, or generally appropriating black dance, music, language, linguistic style? How is this different from blackfishing, co-opting black fashion and cultural branding ideas by influencers? How is this different from the Wiggers of the 1990s, remember them? Usually white males who presented themselves as black-facing rap and hip-hop performers. How is this different from Jim Crow theatrical blackface, including the blackface performances of singers like Al Jolson? The supporters of Krug, Dolezal, and Benton say that they were merely expressing allophilia. This term identifies people who have a liking for or have a high regard for a group that is not their own or different from their own. And this could be said or assigned to anyone. Yet there is a long history of this occurrence specifically regarding black people. And the term once used to describe it was Negrophile, someone who was friendly to Negroes and their interests. And this term was not always understood to be a compliment. But I don't think we are talking about allophilia or negrophilia here. Racism, as expressed through white privilege, is the driving factor for this demonstration in identity reformation. And there are a number of important points to consider here. White privilege in a, in a racist culture means that you have the power to be whatever you want to be when you're white. That is one of the reasons why Dolezal's supporters have embraced the term transracial. It is defined broadly as across or crossing racial boundaries. If you do a general internet search on Bing, for example, Rachel Dolezal's image literally comes up. In terms of racial identity, transracial is the denial of blackness, while at the same time imagining support and the authority to uphold blackness. Krug, Dolezal, and Benton sought a specific identity that they coveted, and at the same time, one that was historically loathed in society. For those intensely critical of Krug, Dolezal, and Benton, to be sure, this is a racist masquerade or a cosplay. As manufactured and complex as the race construct is, the women under consideration, to some greater or lesser extent, felt that they had to dress and act the part of a black woman. Without this, who would, who, would you believe their claims to blackness? That act suggested that their identity had to be made complete through presenting as a black womanist countenance. Racism 
devalues black life. Black people, not that they would want to, can't just claim a privileged racial identity. Krug preempted the imminent criticism, canceled herself, and apologized. Dolezal was exposed by her parents and doubled down on her claim, while Benton ghosted and then later emerged to admit that she had been deceptive. This racial identity fraud speaks to a special kind of freedom. All three admitted the truth to the public, and two of the three admitted harm to black people and pledged repair. Society is obsessed with race and color, but it is not passionate about ending racism. So what did the pretense accomplish? Who did it really benefit? That black identity was also tied to black activism deepened the attempt to occupy the body of black women. This included the appropriation of black justice movements, which does damage to the good faith efforts of those seriously engaged in community care. Benton purportedly received funding for some of her social justice initiatives. This appropriation of black culture also included the intense, also included the sense of secret surveillance in the black community in ways that deceptively feel like science fiction infiltration. This was and is a betrayal of trust. These acts were offensive to many black women in general, but it was particularly insulting to dark-skinned black women because of colorism. Colorism is inter and intra-racial discrimination that favors light-skinned black people over darker-skinned black people. This is because of the value placed on white skin and then how close other people come to whiteness. Colorism also refers to the extent that lighter skin is preferred by white people in white spaces. You see this brand of colorism in real life and in television and film and once upon a time in print or slick magazines. Critics pointed out that because of the prevalence of colorism, Krug, Dolezal, and Benton were favored over darker skinned black women who held the same positions and seemingly the same viewpoints. Some called this racial identity charade a form of anti-black violence, and there was damage done to their communities, students, supporters, and colleagues. These women received social and professional benefit that might have gone to a black or Latina woman who are traditionally paid less, recognized the least in professional spaces, rarely cited in the mainstream in terms of their groundbreaking scholarship, and have fewer opportunities for grants, fellowships, scholarships, and teaching positions. 
I have served on countless search committees for tenure track positions. And in the 1990s into the 2000s, higher education institutions with very poor records of hiring black or persons of color in the faculty ranks would have vigorously argued for any candidate if they could indicate in the selection box, person of color, woman, bilingual, any box other than black. Emphasizing the racial ambiguity, mixed race, biracial, transracial, the, um, any of these categories of others is a popular white supremacist tool of control. And this is really a form of deracination and then literally creates an amalgam of personalities to choose from. Once again, anything other than black. People who suspected racial fraud were afraid to say anything. Critics asserted that some of these same people who would arrogantly challenge a dark-skinned black woman academic for living her best life as a scholar activist wouldn't say anything to a light-skinned woman of color who approximated whiteness. A black woman would have been challenged and questioned about almost everything else having to do with her existence, from her appearance to her choice of theoretical framework, and particularly if she is an espoused activist. Conversely, those who felt that something was not right among these women and attempted to report this brand of deception were ignored or silenced. These seemingly innocuous episodes of racial shape-shifting are exhausting to black lives and black women specifically. Krug, Dolezal, and Benton appeared credible and they did three disturbing things. First, they created pathological black backstories. And this is particularly troublesome and requires really its own podcast episode. But the insertion of a rape origin story uh, by Krug helped to ensure that skeptical people would not ask too many questions uh, because they were being sensitive to uh, that particular trauma. Second, these women told complex shifting narratives of their origin, which at least um, could be viewed as, at the very least, could be viewed as destabilizing. Third, they participated in the glamorization and fetishizing of black struggle and oppression. So how does allophilia hold when white women who could create any fictional story they wanted chose stories that reflected and reinforced racist pathologies of black people, including the exotic minority? Krug, 
Dolezal and Benton claim the kind of the same kind of racial discrimination, harassment, and victimization that black women and women of color experience, which strangely confirms and at the same time undermines the reality that black women face every day. The viral stories of career and identity deception confirm that in the prevailing racial landscape, blackness is not interesting unless it is sensational. White supremacy teaches us that white women have the privilege to craft such a deception, work out their need for attention, profit from it, and then apologize for it when it is uncovered. At the same time, when black women are being assaulted while jogging, reading a book, having lunch, or just standing in a line, these women had the freedom to build whole careers on an intricate ruse to explore and try out identities and to work through psychological and emotional spaces publicly. So what of my mother's counsel that all I had to do in this world was stay black and die? You've heard this phrase before. It is superbly evocative of black culture. The phrase is about being fully situated in your power, but it also means that we don't have a choice but to be who we are, who we were meant to be, to be proud of who we are, and that our blackness, our Africanity, is as serious and real as human mortality. It is also an obligation to the people, yeah, and for the culture. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Support for independent podcasts like The Invention of Racism is critical at this moment. In the national and global effort to dismantle racism and to establish human equality, we need as many thoughtful and courageous voices as possible. If you believe in and appreciate this anti-racism podcast, continue to download and support us. I also encourage you to use your media platform to honestly analyze, examine, and to put an end to racism. If you are listening to this podcast series, then you already know. Discourse on racism is not for the faint of heart. I hope you will continue to join me as I present key topics in the invention of racism.